Good afternoon and everyone and welcome. My name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society and the privilege of welcoming you all today here to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and specifically to our beautiful Robbins Family Forum for what I know will be a wonderful afternoon of discussion and contemplation. Truly, few figures from America's past have have been better known than young, the young Powhatan woman who has come down to us as Pocahontas. Her fame, as rarely this happens, her fame began in her own lifetime, and it's lasted more than 400 years since. The places, uh, the, the, the places we know, the stories we remember of Pocahontas, her encounters with Captain John Smith, her marriage to John Ralph, her journey to England, these are all part of a narrative that has largely shaped our understanding of the first permanent English settlement in North America. The 400th anniversary of the death of Rebecca Ralph, as Pocahontas was known when she traveled to England, took place in March of 2017, for which the Commonwealth of Virginia sent an impressive delegation to Gravesend. And I've, uh, upon my arrival here, heard nothing but positive reflections on that really important commemoration. This past March, to again mark the anniversary of her passing and her legacy of strength, courage, and peacemaking, I had the great privilege of accompanying Chief Anne Richardson uh, for a special remembrance journey back to Gravesend, England. Our visit was meant as a continuation of the momentum formed in 2017 and in conjunction with the Pocahontas Project, a series of events planned by a dedicated group in England together with a similar group here in Virginia that strive to honor and tell the real life story of Pocahontas. And it's out of those commemorations in 2017 and then again in 2018 that the idea of this symposium blossomed. After many months of planning, we're excited to bring you this discussion about this fascinating figure in our past. Conversations like what we will hear today are a part of our new commitment as an institution to do more and be more for Virginia and Virginians. We are very proud and we may be the oldest cultural organization of its kind in the Commonwealth and one of the very oldest history organizations in this nation founded in 1831. But I'll be the first to say that we haven't done nearly enough to welcome all and represent all the critical stories of our past. We've just launched the most ambitious strategic plan in our institutional history and you will see us do even more and gain even more momentum as we tell the ever-evolving story of Virginia in a fresh, inclusive, and innovative way. Uh, before we begin today's conversation, I'd like to extend a few special welcomes. Uh, representing our wonderful Board of Trustees, we are joined today by our current trustee, Jeanette Kedwallander. Thank you, Jeanette. And also former trustee, Charlie Reed is here, I believe. You here, Charlie? Somewhere? There he is. Uh, I'd also like to express my deep gratitude to Alan LeCompte, Rick Tatnell, and especially to Chief Stephen Atkins for their vision and efforts in support of this program, uh, which grew truly from their desire to tell the story of Pocahontas from both the English and Native American perspectives. And I can still remember when we were reminiscing today about that first conversation in my office, Chief Atkins, and I'm just thrilled that we're here today and joined by so many people who are interested uh, proving that this is was something worth doing. So thank you to the three of you. I'd also like to thank our co-sponsors, the 2019 commemoration, American Evolution, for their dedication and support. To Kathy Spangler, Executive Director, I wish to express my sincere uh, gratitude for her partnership, and also Amy Ritchie, Associate Director for Partnership and Programs, and Amy is with us today. Thank you, Amy. I'd also like to recognize John Knapp, State Director from Senator Tim Kaine's office, and a very warm welcome to Kelly Thomason, Secretary of the Commonwealth, who I'd actually like to take a moment here and invite her forward to offer her greeting to the group. Kelly? Thanks, Jamie, and, uh, and to the Museum of History and Culture for having us here today. This is certainly an exciting uh, day. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled that I was able to carve some time out of my schedule to join, not just because I, uh, I um, always relish the opportunity to be with our tribal chiefs um, and, uh, and to, uh, to learn more about our history and culture, um, but to hear about this important um, subject and, and to really learn more um, with all of you. So thank you for having me here. Um, 
I work for, uh, as Jamie said, I'm the Secretary of the Commonwealth, and as Secretary of the Commonwealth, I get to serve as the liaison to all of our Indian tribes on behalf of the governor, which is a huge honor for me. Um, and so, uh, and so it's, it's great to be here, especially this month, which is, uh, as many of you may know, American Indian History Month, American Indian Month uh, in, the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia that the governor proclaimed. So thank you so much and uh, enjoy the day. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you everyone again for joining us and in, in, in taking this time. I think that you'll be in for a real treat today. Uh, to introduce the first session of Pocahontas, her life, legend, and legacy, I'd like to call to the stage my colleague, Andy Telkov, who is our Vice President for Exhibitions and Publications, and we, you'll see him throughout the day. Uh, so, Andy, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you again for being here, and thank you for all your support. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Jamie, and, and thank all of you for joining us today. Um, it was really my pleasure to be able to work with the steering committee for this symposium and coordinate the wonderful program that you're going to participate in this, this afternoon. Um, and it is really exciting, after all of that planning and preparation, to see a room full of people and to understand that um, there continues to be a really strong interest in the story of Pocahontas. And with all of you, I'm looking forward to an afternoon where we can perhaps separate uh, myth from reality um, regarding one of America's most uh, well-known uh, personalities uh, and gain greater, greater understanding as to how her story is relevant to us today. So today's program is divided into three conversations with a five-minute break between our first and second session and a longer 20-minute break between our second and third session. And all of today's panelists will be on this stage following the last session to respond to all of the questions that I'm sure are going to be generated in your minds on this subject. Um, so be sure to note them down throughout the afternoon so that you can remember them later. Um, I also wanted to let you know that uh, today's sessions are being recorded by the museum and will be available on our website uh, shortly after the program concludes. Um, but I'd also like to give a warm welcome to our friends from C-SPAN who are recording this program and will be airing it nationwide um, soon after this program. So um, you're all on television now. So our first session, Pocahontas, Ambassador of Cross-Cultural Understanding, is moderated by Chief Stephen R. Adkins. Chief Adkins was elected chief of the Chickahominy tribe in 2001. He also served on the school board for Charles City County, where he became aware of a void in the way that the story of Virginia Indians was told in Virginia's classrooms. As chief, he worked tirelessly on behalf of the Virginia Indian tribes to gain federal recognition and to assure that America's leadership includes a Native American voice. We're so pleased to have him lead uh, this first discussion today, and I'll now turn the floor over to him to introduce today's panel. Thank you very much. As was stated, my name is Stephen Adkins. I also serve on the 2019 Commemoration Commission, and I'd like today you will get a chance to uh, look at that Pocahontas, the image we have of her, which is somewhere, the reality is somewhere between Disney and Captain John Smith. Uh, so we will, we will tackle that and folks are gonna give some very uh, objective viewpoints and I'm gonna yield to the more erudite folks on this, on this uh, dais who I have utmost respect for. I hold them all in high esteem and, and they, are, they are, are experts in their own right. And what I will do is let them introduce themselves uh, so we don't have the redundancy. And I will, I will start with you. Sure. And uh, you may bring your statements after your introductions, and then we we'll go through. All right. Can everyone hear me all right? Yeah. All right. Anyone in the back? I'm not used to speaking in lecture halls, so. 
Uh, my name is John Pagano. I'm the uh, Historical Interpretation Supervisor at Henricus Historical Park. Um, so for me, um, I kind of feel like I was born to be here at some point because my name is John. I feel like I'm in... <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I do get that about every time I speak on the subject. Um, but as far as um, uh, being here, um, I represent Henricus Historical Park and, and what we interpret there, which is going to be heavily uh, dealing with this subject at hand. Uh, we are a public history institution and an open-air living history museum. So for our purposes, um, this topic is uh, near and dear to my heart, but also for our audiences, both school groups and visitors. Um, it's an everyday, 365-day-a-year occurrence for us. So um, am I supposed to go through my Yeah, you may. Now? Well, we can talk about oh. Ambassador of uh, Cross-Concert <laughs> Understand. All right, well, so it, how much time do I have? You got <laughs> You have five minutes, and I'll do the film, so let's rock and roll. <laughs> my, boy, you know, my normal time with the crowd is 30 to 40. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but one thing that we, um, we have to um, kind of address at our site is both in, in school groups and certainly uh, with our, our general audiences um, is that we have a, a person who lived here uh, over 400 years ago named uh, Pocahontas, um, and she's going to make an, an impact, certainly, on not just her own community that, to which she was born, but also for the English community to which she engages. And also, if you consider the English become the United States, um, we are going to have a, a huge legacy. Uh, so when people come to my site and my staff, which do an amazing job uh, handling all these questions, all these different layers and subjects, um, we have to be prepared to bring it back to these subjects we're discussing today. And most people have a most people have a, a, a Disney perspective on the subject. Um, my staff are extremely well-read, and uh, being that we work in public history and present the idea of rebuilding an idea, um, you can well imagine a huge undertaking it is to collectively do that. Um, and most of our public, I had people at my site this summer from Belgium, Uganda, um, India, they've all heard of Pocahontas. They know something of her. The, the question is, what have they heard? And how do we bring that back into some reality? And that's the challenge, whether it's at my site or all the other people that are going to be presenting today, who, by the way, I, I'm blessed and privileged to be amongst this, uh, this fine assembly of people that have been doing this a lot longer than I have. And uh, I want to thank you for having me here today. That's fast. <laughs> Thought it was 30 minutes. I thought it was in 40. Uh, chief Robert Gray of the Pamunkey Indian Tribe. Uh, I've been chief since 2015. Uh, I've served on tribal council for over 25 years, living on the Pamunkey Indian Reservation. Uh, honored to be here, honored to uh, speak about this topic. And in order to keep myself under five minutes, I had to write down some notes that I'll refer to. Uh, otherwise, if I keep going, uh, Steve would be yanking me off the stage. Um, when, when I want to express my views about Pocahontas, I, I want to lay some groundwork and actually begin about 100 years before she was even born. In 1493, Pope Alexander VI issued a papal bill, bull that stated that any land not inhabited by Christians was available to be discovered, claimed, and exploited by Christian rulers. This concept came to be known as the Doctrine of Discovery, which was basically an attempt to use religion to justify conquest and colonization. While this was a Catholic document and doctrine, history has shown us that much of the Protestant world adopted the same views. In 1606, the Virginia Company was chartered by King James I as a commercial venture, but due to early setbacks, financial support was dwindling. In 1609, the company began enlisting the aid of several important Anglican preachers to change the message from commercial interest to one of natural, national pride, religion, and missionary work. The general tone of these preachers is basically the same, but I'm going to concentrate on one particular preacher for reasons that will become obvious. In April 1609, the Reverend Robert Gray <laughs> published a sermon entitled, A Good Speed to Virginia. A complicated sermon studied by many, two points stand out to me particularly. 
The first is that Reverend Gray uses this sermon to dehumanize Virginia natives as savage, devil worshipers, and proponents of human sacrifice. The second is the Reverend's belief that the proper English education can rectify and correct the nature of these savages. So here we have in 1609, the message being preached by English religious leaders is that Virginia natives are savages who can only be saved with the proper English ed education. Jump ahead a few years to 1612. By this time, John Smith and another colonist, William Strachey, are both in England publishing books about Pocahontas. Other writings about Pocahontas are probably circulating at the same time. And English men and women are being introduced to Virginia natives via such writings about a beautiful and playful young Indian girl. Such, such writings would naturally help the English view Pocahontas and other Virginia natives in a positive light. Pocahontas was kidnapped a year later, but something tells me that particular fact was probably not shared with the English public. Uh, I would assume that the public did learn about her English education, her baptism and marriage to John Rolfe in 1614, prior to her visit to England in 1616. Her time in England could only serve to provide even further evidence of her humanity, and at the same time support the idea espoused by Reverend Gray that with the proper English education, these savages can be tamed. So to me, therein lies the primary benefit of Pocahontas as a cultural ambassador. She helped raise awareness of Virginia natives as human. Or probably for some people, Virginia natives were at least capable of being human with the proper education. That early attention to Pocahontas evolved, and as we are all aware, her legacy continues today in England, the United States, and other places around the world as an embodiment of Virginia natives. But I have to add, her kidnapping and subsequent English education and baptism, she also serves as an embodiment of the forced assimilation of Virginia natives who lost much of their identity and culture to English colonization. And with that, I'll turn it over to the next speaker. All right. I'm Bill Rasmussen. I'm the senior curator here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And 23 years ago, I co-authored a book, The Life and Legend of Pocahontas, um, available in our shop. <laughs> <laughs> the proceeds benefit the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So I've had a long time to think about Pocahontas, more, more years than she lived. Um, my study of Pocahontas involves the records left by the Englishmen. So what I want to do with my few moments here is to look at those documents for evidence of Pocahontas' contributions to cross-culture understanding. And they show that she started a number of trends. There are six major episodes of her life that are recorded. The first one is the famous one, the, uh, the rescue of, of, of John Smith in December of 1607, after he was captured and taken to Chief Powhatan. We probably will never know for certain what exactly happened there, but for the purpose of this panel and our subject, what's, what's important is that immediately following the encounter, she became an emissary who accompanied Powhatan's provisions of food, carried to Jamestown, and she also carried requests from Powhatan for the release of Indian prisoners. So at that point, she began her role as an ambassador of cross-culture understanding, and she began to learn English well enough to, to understand it and to be understood, and that took effort. Um, and and that, that by itself is evidence of her interest in understanding English culture. The second episode was a second rescue incident. A little over a year ago in the winter of 1608-1609, the settlers were near starvation. Relations with the Powhatans had deteriorated greatly. Powhatan invited John Smith to visit. Um, he accused him correctly of invading his people and intending to take his country. He intended to kill John Smith. Smith was trapped because his ship sat at low tide. Pocahontas suddenly appeared and warned him, and so the English stood guard until, until high tide came and they could, could escape. In the meantime, a volunteer sent from Jamestown to check on Smith uh, named Richard Whiffen was warned by Pocahontas. She saved him too. A young 14-year-old boy named Henry Spillman got caught up in this too. She hid and saved him also. And it, the first Anglo-Powhatan War had begun and she was doing what she could 
to keep the two sides from killing one another, which would be, which was an impediment to cross-cultural understanding. <laughs> so we passed four years during that war before the next incident happens, when she was abducted by an English navigator, um, Captain Samuel Argall, uh, uh, up in the Potomac River region. And it can be argued that her willingness to take a chance with Argall and go aboard his ship was a, a evidence it's a, 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 of her effort to promote a resumption of amicable relations. And that's an act of an ambassador of cross-cultural understanding. Later that year, or early the next year, 1614, she took the major step um, of converting to Christianity. Um, and as uh, Chief Gray mentioned, mentioned a moment ago, talking about the, the, the volumes, the books published in London in the first two decades after 1607, um, this was a major goal of the English, the con converting the Indians to Christianity. The missionary impulse is a major theme that runs through those books. She understood that, and, and, and that was part of, of I think it's safe to say that's part of what motivated her. Uh, how better to understand a different culture than to adopt a part of it? And then, of course, the next step is her marriage in 1614. And this, of course, was a path that would have ended the need for cross-culture underst understanding had not the prejudices of the white population uh, prevented that solution. We, we do know, and this is probably something Helen found out, that 20 years later, uh, there were some Nansamon Indians marrying um, English settlers. So she started something. That was a trend she, she started. Uh, the sixth episode is the trip to England where she's presented by the Virginia Company to, to, show, to show themselves off, to show that their investment was working uh, and, and they were having success as a missionary endeavor. She was the proof of that. Her, her reception garnered attention and excitement. Um, we have um, in our gallery upstairs two gold buttons that descended in the family that she was, was given there. And she adopted English clothing. If you look at the picture of her on the front of your program, it's a Simon Vanderpass uh, drawing that was turned into an engraving. And you see that she is wearing English clothing, that high, that Jacobean era high neck dress, and the white beaver hat. And by doing so, she started another trend. Now, I have some new information here to prove that. Um, something new. <laughs> one of our uh, colleagues, uh, in fact, one of our trustees, Bill Woodridge, was recently searching in England in the National Archives there in Kew. And he came across the records of the office of the Royal Household of Charles II. Now, this is 50 years after, uh, after Pocahontas. And, and he found there are 10 requests for reimbursement submitted by merchants who had provided gifts that the leaders of the colony of Virginia presented to the various Indian tribes. And, and it's clothing of the same sort that you see in that Vanderpass engraving. These were gifts to the kings and queens and sons of the Pamunkey, Wyanoke, Nansaman, and Nottoway tribes, and they were given all sorts of garments, such as, quote, 22 and a half yards of scarlet shaloon, that's a wool, um, to line three robes, fine scarlet worsted stockings, stitched all down the leg with dark silk, gold and silver buttons for coats and breeches, a white beaver hat with a gold and silver band. So all of those items that we see, or at least some of those items that we see in the, um, in the Vanderpass engraving uh, were followed uh, at least 50 years earlier, if not before also. So Pocahontas started trends. Um, she became an emissary. She learned the language, she saved lives, she converted to Christianity, she married, she accepted English clothing. I'll turn it to her. Now for some debunking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Helen Roundtree, retired professor of anthropology from Old Dominion University in Norfolk. I grew up in Hampton Roads, and I grew up with all six phases, thank you and all of the myths. After my first two degrees in anthropology and before taking the third, I started taking a specialty in Powhatan Indians. That was 1969. I am merely a spring chicken. <laughs> and among other things, I wanted to scour up every single eyewitness account about the lady that I could possibly find. Because for me, that was a starting point. My starting point was not John Smith's general history. It was written much later. Thank you, just the same. So I scrounged up 
everybody I could find. And bless his heart, Ed Hale has the Jamestown narratives, which would have saved me the trouble, but it came out 30 years too late. <laughs> and I've got news for you, friends. These accounts that he has printed take up 831 pages. And all of the mentions of Pocahontas by eyewitnesses who knew her in person, she was alive at the time all of these were written, amounts to a little over one page. Now, maybe that doesn't bother you, but it's always bothered the daylights out of me, and it continues to. And if I couldn't find eyewitness accounts, I was still not willing to rely upon what I thought might be pathology, especially when I saw the time in which John Smith wrote so many of the mentions that have occurred later. He wrote it during an Indian war, and she was the only good Indian. And that makes me very, very suspicious. So since I couldn't go in to find out about her through the front door, I went in through the back door, which as an anthropologist, we are taught to do. You start learning about the cultures of both sides the cultures, you don't focus on individuals so much, although they're still interesting, but you learn about the cultures on both sides. Because I wanted to know what her position was among her own people, her real position. Her daddy was the one that the English really had to deal with, he had the power. So where did she stand? Well, I couldn't find that out immediately. I had to go back and go in through the cellar door. <laughs> because you see, Practically all of the English writings that involve Indians are about the men's world. They were written by men, they're about men, and there may possibly have been resistance on the part of Indian women even to talk to a man. None of your business, shoot, go away, go away. So I took a leaf out of John Whithoff's book, archeologist up in Pennsylvania. He said, Indian women's world was botanically based. And I went back and looked at the jobs they did, mainly with plants, aside from caring for children, of course, but loads of stuff with plants, gathering them, using them, making them into things. So I had to reconstruct as best I could the botanical knowledge that people had. And then from there, reconstruct how women would have gone about getting those things and then using them. And that opened up the women's world to me to quite an extent. If nothing else, I discovered, Pokey would have known this too, by the way, Women used canoes just as men did. They were not toys for overgrown boys. <laughs> Women's work required them to be able to handle themselves around canoes and go out into the forest. They were anything but stay at home. Well, we've got on and on and on with this, and I've done it in a banner lecture already. But after I had really looked at that, after about 30 years, and it really was that long, I sat down and I rescoured the records and I said, okay, what do these tell me about what Pocahontas would have been like? What would be her position? How much power did she have? What was her capability? And that leads me to my opinions, and that's all they are. Until the time machine comes along, it's an opinion. My opinions about the ambassador issue and the savior issue and all the rest of it. In a thumbnail, it is this. She was not the savior of the English colony. Pao Chan was. 11-year-old girls did not swing enough economic power to collect food. She couldn't have done such a thing in the first place. She didn't have the power to get everybody to give her stuff to take to Jamestown. Her daddy sent the stuff, and he sent it under the supervision of adults. She probably came along for the ride. Think about the 11-year-olds you've known. <laughs> And they get a chance to gawk at, essentially, what would now be space aliens. <laughs> we're not talking about saving, we're talking about gawking. And the very few eyewitness accounts of Pocahontas in the English fort indicate that's what she was. Second thing, her main value before she married Mr. Rolfe, her second husband, was as a potential hostage. Because that would give the English leverage over Powhatan. And when she finally was captured in 1613, that's exactly what she became. After which she had to learn English culture because there wasn't any other way out of it. And in the book I finally wrote partially about her, there's not enough for a whole book, I think. 
then I actually slung the words of the phrase Stockholm Syndrome around. You learn the way and the thinking of the people who hold you captive in order, number one, to survive. It, that wouldn't have been a problem for her, but simply to have a viable kind of life for however long she had to remain there. After her marriage, then you can begin to talking, talk about an ambassador and a cross-cultural broker, as another anthropologist has called it. And yes, she was all of that and was getting ready to be even more of one at the time that she left London to return to America in 1617. She was going to be the co-CEO, house mother, interpreter, shoulder to cry on for the children in a planned Indian mission. And as a propaganda agent, she would have been very, very powerful. However, how willing she would have been by that time to do actual propaganda, I would love to know. So will somebody please invite me to see a time machine on this? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think what came out resoundingly is that Pocahontas, in fact, was ambassador of cross-culture understanding. As recently as Sunday before last, I was at Berkeley Plantation, and I met a lady from England. And she said, we love Pocahontas. Uh, so even today, that, that, uh, the, the role of ambassador of cross-culture understanding remains in the eyes of people who who view Pocahontas. And the ones, the, the Virginia Indians who have visited England will readily admit, acknowledge that we're treated like royalty. The people in England love us much more, I have to say, than, <laughs> the, than these folks in the continental United States. Um, England recognized us as sovereign subjects of the crown in 1677. 341 years later, on January the 29th, 2018, President Trump signed a bill that became Public Law 115-121, which acknowledged what the English people had recognized <laughs> 341 years before. So I thank you for this, and tell me where we are in time. Do we have time for questions, or? So I would open this. You can uh, address my esteemed colleagues uh, with, with questions you might have. I will put in a PSA public service announcement, the Monkey Tribe um, has really put together this Pocahontas Reframe Film Festival, which begins tomorrow evening. I would encourage you to go at the, at the uh, Bird Theater. Bird Theater. Bird Theater. And again, that's part of the 2019 Commemoration uh, Commission. So I'd encourage you to go. So now I yield to you, my colleagues, to answer your questions. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Roundtree, greetings from Norfolk. And uh, I'm a history professor, and I have a huge problem with the marriage of Pocahontas and John Roth, and I wanted to see if you could, you mentioned Stockholm Syndrome, and I don't know if I've heard you before, but I have no evidence for that, and uh, it just seems too convenient and too too clean that, you know, she would have to tell her father in Okachantano, you know the people that you despise, well, I'm going to marry one of them, and then vice versa, the whole issue of bigamy, and, you know, with the Christians that were there, it just seems too clean, and she falls in love with her captor, and they get married, and Ralph Hamer mentions it, and he's an eyewitness. He mentions the marriage of Pocahontas to Joan Ralph. It did happen. Okay. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that answer is pretty yeah. succinct. It's there. Is it here, Hamer? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Fellow history professor, thank you. Well. <laughs> add a little bit to that. <laughs> we don't know why she, why she married him. We know what John Rolfe said. Uh, he, he wrote a letter, a letter saying that he had to ask permission of Dale, Thomas Dale, because this was a big event. It affected everyone. And, and then he said, well, I'm not marrying her for, uh, due to carnal uh, desire, which suggests to me that probably he was. Uh, <laughs> And, th and so we, we got, we've got his viewpoint on it, but we don't have any of her viewpoint. Yeah. Can I say something real quick on that? Yeah. As someone who was married before, didn't the church have a problem with that? Or did they not recognize 
the Episcopal Church, uh, the Church of England at the time, did not recognize Indian marriages as real marriages. Okay. So the marriage in the Indian world that she had was not a problem for the English. It may not have been much of a problem for her, because there is another somewhat parallel case recorded back in 1607 with the uh, Creole chief who stole a favorite wife of the famous Opie Chancano and was allowed to keep her. Uh, Having a wife captured from. constitutes divorce. You can't, if you can't get her back, they're divorced. They didn't take it any farther. <laughs> Let her go. We've got another response here. Yeah, the, the circumstances with Pocahontas' marriage are an interesting one. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Sir Thomas Dale and the leadership in Virginia were still smarting over Powhatan not giving up all the things that they wanted in exchange for Pocahontas. He's going to take 150 of his men, put them on ships, and Pocahontas is on that ship, and they're going up to Powhatan's capital. Um, there is a, a series of skirmishes, and um, Obi-Kan Canoe is going to be confronting Dale's force with an overwhelming amount of men in front of that capital. Um, and once that uh, battle seems imminent, what you have is John Rolfe, who is now on shore with Master Sparks. They're going to be meeting with Powhatan's emissaries. Uh, and Pocahontas is also on shore, and she's going to be speaking to her brothers. I find it very curious that just before, a month before that wedding, there is those people, all of them, on shore in front of that capital uh, discussing what we don't really know. And next thing you know, within a month, they're married. So it seems to me, again, like Helen said, I'm not... I have no idea what was taking place in those conversations, but it very well could have been that the decision of marriage was made on the ground at that time. Uh, Rolf's letter to Dale is going to be written around that time and submitted, and it could very well be that Rolf didn't know Pocahontas more than one month before they were married. Is there a birth date for Thomas Rolf? No. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that. I never found one. I went looking. No. We don't, even, we don't even know what side of the Atlantic he was born on. You don't see him appear until she's heading home, when he has to be left behind. And they don't tell us how old he was. No Christian record. None. No. I did. I went looking. I rescoured everything for Pokey Pow Opie book, 2005. <laughs> Other questions? I'll go here. I've only found two. <coughs> One is in 1638. Elizabeth, the daughter of the chief of the Nansemans, married John Bass. And today's Nansemans tribe descends from that marriage. The other one was an Indian indentured servant named Sue, who in 1689 was impregnated <coughs> by an Englishman, and they forced him to marry her. Two years later, it was made illegal in Virginia to have interracial marriages. But hers apparently remained on the books. That's the only 17th century marriages I have seen of Powhatan women and English men. And they were marriages. Unions, liaisons, yes, very probably. People being people like a bucket of worms. <laughs> OK, I had a question here, and then here, then back to you. So right here. wondering uh, why John Ralph got the credit for introducing tobacco into, uh, uh, into the um, cash crop. Um, I'm, including, I'm inclined to leave John Ralph's claim to have introduced Orinoco <laughs> tobacco to Virginia to really be his. The kind that Pocahontas had grown up with was the native tobacco, Nicodiana rustica. Which, if you take too much of it, can practically blow the top of your head off. <laughs> and nobody with any sense takes more than a puff or two of it. How else would she wouldn't have known the existence of Orinoco without some sort of trail through the English down into the Caribbean? The English did have those relations, but Pocahontas didn't. Right. So, yeah, I'll give that one to Ralph. <laughs> que question here. Did in 
do you want that, or shall I do it? I mean, I'll we, go first. We, we probably all read yeah. the same account. We've got yeah, it's all this points, his letters. One eyewitness account, and that's all there mm -hmm. is. There's embroidery. There's two more in embroidery, but the eyewitness account, which is Argall's account, written in 1613, the Potomacs very definitely did cooperate with the English, but by that time they had been pretty well weaned away, beginning in 1610, when the English began going up to the Potomac River to buy corn. They weren't raising it themselves, and the local tribes in the James River Valley were no longer cooperating. So they established an alliance with the Potomacs, who were unofficially then detached from even influence of Powhatan, and they did cooperate to get Pocahontas captured. What I've always wanted, and for this I need a time machine again, thank you very much. What was she doing up on the Potomac River? Mm -hmm. And not only that, why was she not visiting the main chief? She was visiting a subsidiary chief, Yapasos. Yeah. She was here. visiting friends, okay. and in English, English at that time, friend could mean a whole variety of things. It didn't just mean buddy, buddy. It could be relatives, we don't know. So we had a question right here. Yeah. To speak. <laughs> you brought up another question, which I'll ask first, and that is if maybe her mother was a member of that tribe and that she was visiting that part of her yes. family. That's entirely possible. I did more scouring to try to find out who her mother might have been, where she might have come from. I found nothing. Right. Nothing, ever. There couple of us uh, Pocahontas descendants here, double Pocahontas descendants. Uh, so I, I know what your answer would probably be, but I'd like to hear from both of you uh, whether Pocahontas and John Rolfe were married at Henricus or at Jamestown Island, speaking of a can oh, of gosh, worms. <laughs> uh, I never found a record of where she, she was married. It could have been either Jamestown or Henricus. And I looked for that one. Yeah, we both did. We yeah. both scoured the records. Um, but he'll say Dale was spending a lot of time at Enricus, so there's a good argument for the people at Enricus to yeah. see it happen there. So John wanted to opine on it. No, no I, I won't say Enricus. Uh, no, uh, uh, we, want it, we would love to say that, but we, we just don't have the, the actual evidence. In fact, when Dale wrote that they were married in a church, um, there would have been three churches at the time, one at Jamestown, one at Henricus, and one at uh, Bermuda City. Those have been the three principal churches at the time. Um, you can take an argument for any one of them. Uh, you know, the Jamestown church is the traditional oldest church, so there you go. And that might be where govern the governor is at the time. Henrikus could be where she uh, was converted with Reverend Whitaker, yada, yada, yada. And, but very well could be that Rolf's residence could have been Bermuda City, and that's where the newest church was, and that's where the biggest population was. So maybe it could have been there. So we really just don't know, and we'll probably not know 400 years from now. Yep, right here. Anybody over here have a question after? Okay. I've kind of ignored you, I'm sorry. So you go first. Hi there. Um, what is your knowledge on how she actually passed away? What did she die from? I've done a lot of research and I'm hearing various um, uh, different ideas of how she passed away. The one thing I remember reading is she died unexpectedly. That was it. And one has to presume that it was something she had no antibody for because there were a lot of deaths happening when these two civilizations went to places they'd never been before okay. and had no immunity against diseases. Okay. I came up with a different take. Mm -hmm. She was taken ashore at Gravesend at a time when everybody practically on board the ship was sick. That's another reason that her son Thomas had to be left behind. There was nobody remaining standing, really, who could take care of him on a voyage over to Virginia. So that, to me, indicates an epidemic of what? There's another little piece of evidence, and it's circumstantial, and again, I want a time machine. When the ship did arrive in Virginia, subsequent to that, and not very long after, an epidemic of bloody flux broke out. Hemorrhagic dysentery is what it actually was. Fortunately, it's mutated again, so we don't quite get it, but it seems to have been something like Ebola in its effects upon people. It took you fast and very messily. Okay, thank you. Question over here. Yes, given the doctrine of discovery, the doctrine of discovery by the Pope, uh, saying that lands that weren't occupied by Christians were free and open for the taking, do you think that had anything to do with her decision to convert to Christianity? 
to protect her land and maybe other natives also? Do you think they thought, well, hey, we'll go by their rule. We'll convert. Why not? May I jump in first? Uh, yeah. In that year in which she was kept captive at Jamestown, she, I think that's when she really started learning English. It's when she was constantly exposed to it. Not that much earlier. You need immersion to learn it really well. And even then, during that year, she may really not have been quite fluent enough to get into discussions of doctrines of discovery. And, and I would add the doctrines of discovery actually started in 1452, Pope Nicholas V to King Alfonso V of Portugal. Then in 1455, a subsequent papal bull uh, satisfied the appetites of, of England, France, Spain, and Italy. So they said, all of you Western European countries, get in act, go get some land, free land, and maybe free labor later on. Had another question? So what do we actually know about, um, about her marriage to Kokum and descendants of that marriage? Next to nothing. He is mentioned in passing. She was married, she had her menses in 1610, and then she was married to a private captain, not a chief, a private captain named Koku, and that's it. No mention of children, no nothing. She was 14 at the time she was married, however. So it may have been several years before she even had one child by him, or she may not yet have had any children thanks to adolescent sterility because she was captured when she was 17. Yes, sir. I, I realize there's kind of a gulf here between uh, Chief Gray and Dr. Rasmussen, but you know, we've used, you've used the term, different uh, people use the term Stockholm Syndrome. How aware was she, if you have any evidence or an opinion of, of her agency, of her, uh, how willing was her, uh, her conversion, her, uh, the role she would begin to play uh, as a, a messenger of this cross-cultural uh, um, divide. I mean, it's, was she witting to all of this? It's, it's like the real conundrum about her. I have a question. All right. I have we'll, a quick we'll question. Go, through that. go ahead. Yeah, I usually, in the work I do, I ask more questions than I have answers, which is most of the story. Um, but one of the things I often ask uh, my public is uh, if, if her father, Palatin, could have gotten her back in the exchange, he would have. The question is, why didn't he? And if um, he had wanted her to remain with the English for whatever purposes, not sure, um, if she would have run away from the English, and went back to him under those conditions, what would have been the result? So we're not sure exactly what, again, those conditions are that she was there, but uh, it very well could have been she was between a rock and a hard place. I have to be with my captors, but I might not be able to go home. She left us no words, so we don't know. Other questions? Here and then here, okay. What would be the, or maybe we'll learn in a subsequent panel, the, um, her people's uh, view of possibly uh, the lore about her, uh, the, the telling of stories, the oral history of Pocahontas. Does, can any of you speak to that in her life? I'm so interested. Um. I guess the Pamunkey don't hold her in the huge esteem that the rest of the world does. And there are some members, uh, it was talked about how she warned the English settlers of pendant attacks. And yes, that might have been cross-culturalism, but it could also be called being a traitor to her own tribe. Uh, so uh, within our tribe, there's various opinions on her, but unfortunately, we just don't have all the information. I would love to have her words on what she was saying, so I'm hesitant to assign motives to her. <laughs> it's, I would say at such a tender age, uh, it's hard to lay blame or, or, or uh, credit at, at her feet. I do know the story was embellished quite a bit uh, by the Western Europeans. 
there's a little myth or legend that possibly Pocahontas saw a performance of The Tempest while she was at the court of King James, which would have been very interesting in the tie-in, of course, to the wreck of the sea venture. Is there any, any validity in that? I can answer that just with what I read in passing and then turn it over to somebody properly trained, which is Bill. I, my understanding was that the reference to the Tempest came from the shipwreck of the 1609-1610 fleet in Bermuda. And Pocahontas was still living with her daddy by that time. It was nothing to do with her. The, the theatrical performances recorded in the records was a mask by Ben Johnson, so there's no mention of, of Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes, right there. My question goes to another subject, which you uh, mentioned at, at, in your presentation about there having been a law against marriage between Native Americans and English as late as 1689. But what was the attitude at the time she was married? And how did this change over time? It's, it's weird to me that when I read so many different genealogical histories and when they're talking about who's a red bowling and who's a white bowling, there are little legends that have been embroidered all over the place about well, so-and-so was really a red bully, but they couldn't say so because they weren't supposed to be married to white people or white people weren't supposed to be married to them. And I just don't know what really was the existing environment of those attitudes. Uh, mm. I can I can do a quick answer for you. Okay. Um, the, the two principal architects behind the marriage are Reverend Alexander Whitaker and Sir Thomas Dale. Um, they are clearly in their writings leaning evangelical puritanism. It, it's all in there. But it's new for the English. It's new for them, and they are here, and there's no evidence that Dale or Whitaker wrote back to England to get any permission or clearance to do it. So they did it on their own accord. Um, the validity of that, I'm not probably, I don't have that expertise to say. But Whitaker is the person responsible for um, making that decision. Dale is the high marshal, so he's legally bound to make the final call, uh, which he did. Um, what happens after that, after uh, Dale and Whitaker are, are dead within five years, people change and uh, ideologies change. Uh, Dale and Whitaker were clearly uh, for the assimilation between these two cultures slowly through marriage. How that changes is, is another story. And for your edification, in the 20th century, it was against the law for whites to marry Indians. Uh, mm -hmm. Walt Ashby Flecker, Racial Integrity Act of 1924, reduced that to writing and a willing legislator, I mean a willing legislature, and, and leaders of colleges and universities supported that. And, and that stayed in effect till 1967. So my parents, in fact, had to go to Washington, D.C. in order to be married as Indians because it was against the law to do it in Virginia. So, uh, so, we, so we, that, we don't have to go back 400 years to see that. That attitude that you're referring to starts right after the Civil War when white Virginia becomes extremely racist. Um, and, and as a result, not only freed African Americans suffer, but also do the, the Indians and the Pocahontas story. And so, you know, it leads up to the Racial Integrity Act where the only acceptable, if you're a descendant of Pocahontas, you had the exception if you had one. 24th, 112th, whatever, blood. That was okay to have been descended from that one marriage. Every other one was unacceptable. So Pocahontas kind of saved the uh, Virginia Indians as late as the uh, 20th century. <laughs> 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 Any other questions? Got one in the back. Uh, good afternoon. Um, what are your thoughts on, given that uh, the whole situation up on the Potomac River with the, the capture, kidnapping, whatever you want to call it. What are your thoughts as to why Powhatan never seems to retaliate against Japazaw and Cleopatra? In fact, Thomas goes and visits them 20 years later. Anybody want to feel that one? I can suggest it. I work with him, so I have a conflict of interest. <coughs> <laughs> I can suggest a couple of things. By 1613, the English settlements were expanding rather rapidly up the James River, although they went even more rapidly up the James after that marriage occurred. But there may really have been some serious economic problems in some of Powhatan's subject territories, so that he would be having economic problems. That's possible. 
He was also a very old man by that time. He died in 1618. He may already have been very, very sick by 1614 because he was not able to see mm. Pocahontas wow. in person when Ralph Hamer took her up to see if they couldn't break off this hostage thing one way or the other. And she didn't go ashore. Uh, she saw her brothers. And the English emissary who went ashore was not allowed to see Powhatan. He was apparently badly under the weather. He saw Opechancanough instead. So all of that, illness and economic trouble, may help to account for some of the problems. There may also have been, by that time, so much bitterness. The first Anglo-Powhatan War was a vicious thing. And enough Indian women and children got killed, which in Indian society was a terrible thing to do. You don't kill women and children. And ironically, Thomas Jefferson cited that in the Declaration of Independence, said that the Crown had incited the savages to the point that they killed indiscriminately all ages and sexes. And that template was set in 1610 when Lord Delaware, the governor of Virginia, dispatched the militia to totally annihilate the Paspahay tribe. So yeah. you're getting a chance to have another view into history. Betsy, don't disappoint me. You have to have a question. Betsy Barton. Hmm. <laughs> Any other questions? We have like four minutes. Yes. Can any of the members of the symposium um, speak to a matrilineal power structure in the Indian tribes, the Virginian Indian tribes? That was a structure in, in the Chickahominy tribes. As a matter of fact, we were ruled by a, a group of uh, people tantamount to a council called the Mungai and a, a, a ritual called a Huskanah, uh, the women would select uh, young men who were just entering the age of puberty uh, to go through a pretty rigid spiritual and physical ritual uh, in order to pass muster, in order to be accepted into the Huskanah. And, and those who failed actually never came back uh, to the tribe. They, I don't know where they went, but they, there, there, was, there was shame and so they just didn't come back. Uh, but but the, the women in the tribe actually selected those folks who were going to be the future leader. And again, among the Chickahominy back then, that, that titular role of, 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 of leader uh, would rotate among those folks in the Mungai. And I don't know how. I know the queen of, of, of the Pamunkey uh, was a primary signatory to the uh, Treaty of 1677, and she actually uh, Extra for the Chickahominy people. So thank you, Chief Gray. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add to that about the matrilineal aspect? No, uh, as, as far as the, uh, I mean, it's complicated. I imagine Dr. Roundtree has it memorized easily. Uh, but yes, it, it, the power went on by matrilineal lines and where it would end up. Uh, we had Powhatan, we had Coaquisk, um Queen Anne, uh, and other ones, that's about all I can say. But it depends on who your mother was. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Roundtree, any opinions on that one? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm our straight man here. You know. <laughs> Let's see if, I can, see if I can do it in English instead of jargonese. This, this is something I did scour for, and it still gives me fits to try to explain it to others. We anthros call it lateral matrilineality, and that is the way that the chiefly positions were passed along. You have all the brothers, then all the sisters, but the next generation passes to the eldest sister's children, first her sons, and then her daughters. That's lateral matrilineality. Mm -hmm. And it means that if any girls are going to become chief, they're going to be at the end of the line, uh, which is probably in some ways just as well. They never were expected to go to war, and that's one of the main things that chiefs handled. But they would have observed enough by the time they had some age on them, they would be perfectly good to make decisions. As for what the common folks were, I, I was asked by my doctoral advisor, scour it all again. Were they matrilineal? Were they patrilineal? Were they bilateral, which is what we are? Either side of the family is OK. Did they have clans? Did they have lineages? Did they have ramages, which I'd never heard of until she told me? <laughs> I could not find any direct evidence of any of that. 
in the eyewitness accounts, and it's why I've never been willing to commit to saying they were X, Y, Z. Again, it's going to take a time machine, and I want some time before I get in it to learn the Powhatan language. Thank you. <laughs> we'll take one final. We're, we're out of time. So. learn the story um, from the primary sources that we do or do not have. Um, I will tell you we work with Virginia's tribes. There is a website, if you Google Virginia's First People, Past and Present, um, it is designed for students kindergarten through grades 12. There is a video there of a young man who tells the story, Meet the Tribes. So if you want to know more from an education as far as what students in Virginia are learning. It's Virginia's first people, past and present. We work very closely, not only with tribal leaders, but also with the Virginia Department of Historic Resources. So I just want to share that along and just thank you to everyone here on this stage. So we want that Virginia Indian history to go K through PhD. So we need your help making that happen. <laughs> I'd like to thank this panel, these very erudite, learned individuals about this subject matter. So thank you so much for what you've added today. And I too would like to, I too would like to echo um, Steve's praise of, of this group. Um, it's sort of amazing to me that someone who we know um, relatively little about has had such a major impact over four centuries that people are still talking about this, that we're still talking about this. Mm -hmm. um, and we're gonna continue to talk about this. 